Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Chit Heads. My guest today is Manorma. Manorma is one of the leading teachers in the study of Sanskrit and yoga philosophy. She is the founder of both the Sanskrit Studies Method and the Luminous Soul Method. Manorma evokes healing through the universal arts of language and conscious living. Happiness, she often says, quote, is the free flow of energy, and communication is energy. When we use our voices authentically and confidently, we create harmony between ourselves and others. A renowned, highly respected teacher, Manorma offers Sanskrit studies method programs for yoga teacher trainings, as well as luminous soul method trainings and retreats. She tours the globe, training students in the Sanskrit studies method and the luminous soul method. So hello, Manorma. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi. Thanks so much for having me, Jake. Wonderful to be here with all of you at Embodied Philosophy. Love the idea and the concept. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I'm really excited to share this podcast with our listeners because I think you have such incredible teachings to share. Thank you. But one of the first things I wanted to talk a little bit about is a little bit about yourself, your life, and the path that has led you to this inspiring educational institute for Sanskrit studies that you've created. Uh Uh-huh. Okay, so... um, What led me to where I am now, I guess, is um, I was kind of, um, like a lot of people say, you know, sometimes it's some sort of spiritual crisis that comes Mm. up in anybody's life. Um, I was a very energetic kid. I had, like, more energy than, um, I started to notice as I got older, more energy than most people had Mm. as a kid. I was really filled with energy. And if that energy didn't get directed properly, it could have gone one way or the other. Luckily, my mom one day, um, she mentioned that there was something going on at this yoga center and there was a man who was going to be speaking. And I kind of squinted down and looked at her like, "Mm, does my mom want me to do this? You thought she had an agenda? Yeah, I thought she had an agenda. I was 13 years old and I thought she's got an agenda, you know. (laughs) But she was very cool and very very cool. And she said, um, she said to me, you know, if you want to go, whatever. And so as a result, I kind of went and Mm. there was, uh, the man, there was a man there whom I call Guruji. Uh, his formal name is Shri Brahmananda Sarasvati. And prior to his taking sannyas, he be, he was known as Dr. Ramamurti S. Mishra. Mm. And that was really a very historical moment for me, Jake, because I, Everything changed after that. I was so riveted by the things he was saying. And I thought, frankly, there I was, you know, 13, almost 14. And I was like, I cannot believe people are saying these amazing things. Why aren't more people here? Why aren't there more young people? This is so relevant to myself and to um, everybody around me. So it was, that was a pivotal moment for me. Yeah, Mm. for sure. Mm. And I think also... I come from a family of uh, both artists and lawyers, and... Interesting mix. Yeah, quite a mix, for sure. My mom's the artist, my dad comes from the long family of lawyers, and I guess, you know, there's an, there's an analytical, oops, analytical piece to the law work, you know, there's a lot of... Um, There's a lot that goes in there. But in terms of the artistic piece, you know, both of my parents were both extremely open people. Mm -hmm. And I didn't think of it at the time, but as the years have gone on, I think that level of openness, they didn't necessarily get into everything. But they were always open to hear about it. And that level of openness um, actually created a lot of openness in me Mm -hmm. to be able to kind of look at things um, and allow the possibility of them to um, 
you know, be thought about and participate sort of in my American, very American upbringing. But my very American upbringing became um, half Indian and half American at, after the age of 13, after I met my teacher, whom I call Guruji. So, wow. Yeah. So did, uh, when you met Guruji, had there been previous in your life, had your parents been at all interested in yoga or any spiritual practices at all? Had that been... You know, it's a great question. It's a funny question because my father just asked me the other day over uh, French fries, how did I ever get into, how did I meet my teacher? Which mm. I am surprised that he, I was like, how do you not know this? How many times, right? But um, but he didn't know the specifics. So my mother had a, she used to take a class. She was a bit of a beatnik and a bohemian, my mom. And um, she took a yoga class in the town that I grew up in. And then from there, the woman mentioned that there were these classes in philosophy. And I think my mom went a few times and then eventually invited me to go up with her. So that's a bit how that started. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one of the things I'd like to, since we're sort of talking about the subject of Guruji, what I think is really remarkable about your life compared to many contemporary yogis is your relationship with a guru. Yes. And, And this, you know, relationship which, you know, as I'm sure you've noticed, has been somewhat castigated in recent yes. years. Mm-hmm. And, and in my own understanding, it seems to miss a little bit of what the guru actually represents, yes. you know, in these kinds of, um, uh, in these situations where gurus have abu- been supposedly abusing their power. So I would love for you to talk a little bit about what the guru actually represents, the overall kind of philosophy of the guru for those that may have been swayed by... Uh, you know, recent kind of discussions about, you know, the the uh, hypocrisies of the guru or or the corruption of the guru. Wow! So the hot topic. Yeah. So nothing major, right? No, not at all. <laughs> not here at Embodied Philosophy. <laughs> what day is it? February first, the month of Lord Shiva. Okay. So <laughs> nothing, nothing major, everybody. Nothing major. Um, okay, so this is a big topic, mm-hmm. and I'm well-placed to say some thoughtful things about Great. this topic. First of all, I want to acknowledge the fact that there are times in life when people, uh, through their own confusion, do abuse their power, and that is to be recognized. I want to say that in the beginning of the discussion. Mm-hmm. So before I get into the more luminous and beautiful aspects of tradition, and certainly the Guru Shishya tradition, which means the Guru student tradition, I want to say that up front, that there are times when, uh, and there are many people who probably will be listening to this or who will hear it in times to come, who have experienced an abuse of power um, or uh, a fracture of trust Mm -hmm. from, you know, some experience, whether it's in the context of a yogic uh, teaching or so on and so forth, or in other contexts in their lives, you know, gymnastics or bike racing or whatnot, right? So, um, First of all, there's always this understanding that teachers are embodied. Seems to work Mm -hmm. well with our theme today. Teachers are embodied. And I'm going to start with uh, an idea that I think is uh, possibly of interest to your listeners and and to people overall. There is a term for the word umbrella. Mm -hmm. In Sanskrit, the word umbrella is chatra. It's chatra with an aspiration at the beginning. So that's not random. It's chatra. And then one day I asked this um, teacher in who's high up in the Sanskrit world, why is the word for student chatra or chatra? So chatra would be the masculine, 
chatra for the feminine. <clears throat> I was just getting curious, which is, you know, always a great place to work from in your practice. And <clears throat> and what happened was he it's it spurred this beautiful dialogue um, about the tradition. And I thought I'd share a little bit with you guys here. So he said to me at the time that the umbrella is that he said that all teachers, this is, and he's somebody who really stands as a representation of the Sanskrit world. He said, all, all teachers are embodied beings. They come through the channel of embodiment. And I'll add my flavor to that. So I'm going to paraphrase. All teachers are embodied in this realm. Mm-hmm. And there are, uh, as he mentioned, there are flaws to that and there are beautiful qualities to that. The flawed aspects are not to be sent out into the world is the idea. So that's why students become the umbrella of tradition. In other words, they're meant to hold the defects. The way that he put it was the defects of the teacher should be kept in part of that person's personal life and everybody has them, right? Like I I think one of my defects is maybe I might curse a little too much, little known fact about Menorma. But that's welcome here on this podcast, by the way, if oh, you feel shit, called then to. That's good. <laughs> um but I always feel called to. But but that doesn't mean that I don't value sacred speech or that I haven't mm-hmm. devoted my life. And and oftentimes contradictions are interesting in lots of different people. So in any event Maybe it's a link to my dad and my brother. <laughs> I tip my hat to them on that. Yeah. Um, but in any event, um, so this idea that the umbrella is the student, right? And so now I have so many pictures of umbrellas, and maybe I'll show you as yeah. you look around. You can see one over there. But students give me little pictures of umbrellas, and that's the symbol of the relationship between the teacher and the student. That the student must act as the umbrella and keep those defects down. Now, it's not that the student has to run around and keep the bad qualities of a teacher. Don't misunderstand it by grabbing a surface meaning. Mm -hmm. Let me give the interpretation. So, or my interpretation, which um, I've spent a long time uh, immersed in. So the interpretation is this, that the, the student is going to grow in the light of the teachings, and there are, there are human qualities to any embodied being. Mm So the places where anybody has humanity, let us, let us be aware of that. But at the same time that we're aware of that humanity, let us also look for the elevation point and let the elevation points be the points that we kind of send more out into the world. So has this been abused? Have people been confused? Have there been, and I want to say this, have there been confused teachers who have been um, who have made a lot of mischief, and not just mischief, but quite a, quite a good deal of suffering for people? Absolutely. Have there been students who've made a lot of mischief for their teachers? What do you think? Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. right? On both ends, right? Mm-hmm. So whenever there's misunderstanding, there's going to be mischief and suffering. But like I always say, the guru is a kind of, the guru shishya is a kind of relationship, one that we don't necessarily have... Um, as much understanding about in the West in its Mm -hmm. deepest sense. Mm -hmm. Now, and this is what I say to people, a mother can, is not the same thing to everybody. Somebody, some people say, oh, my mother was amazing. Other people say, I only wish my mother was amazing. (laughs) So, you know, we all have different experiences. Some people say, well, my dad was amazing. Other people say my dad was a nightmare and my brother and my sister. So, you know, I don't think we get rid of the concept of mother. Right. So in the same way, we, don't, we really mustn't get rid of the concept of guru, 
but maybe we need to understand it a little bit more and study more about it um, because it isn't synonymous with abuse. It isn't synonymous with confusion. It is, now I'm going to go into what it is. It is synonymous with the concept of light, which is where, you know, with my work in Luminous Soul Method, it's not random that the word is luminous Mm. and that there's the word soul there. So first of all, Luminous is light-filled. Sanskrit is the language of light, spiritual light, soulful light. And the tradition of the gurus is meant to embody or is meant to signify the embodiment of the light that comes through an embodied being and is able to transmit that light and transform those who come into contact with him or her um, through that deep understanding and that should be held as a sacred thing as a respected thing as a trusted uh quality um let me pause for a second and just allow me this pause for one minute i want to just sit with that the word guru itself derives from two pieces gu which i always say is your gu your muck your darkness and ru that which removes or Ru means to ascend, to cross over. So that force which helps you cross over your darkness or your avidya, your avidya, which is your confusion, the places where you have darkness or your your vision is obscured. The guru is a force. More than anything, it is a force. And then when an embodied being has purified their consciousness and truly understands the depth of the teachings, not only inside themselves but has been able to understand it outside they are able to um, really transmit that force to put that force into action and then you ascribe the meaning guru to that that being you call them guruji for the masculine or you can also call the feminine that but more more frequently you would call the feminine guru ma or just a ma or a ma and guru could be called guruji or baba or maharaj or something of that nature Mm. Wow, that's such a beautiful explanation. Thank you for that. Hope that helps. You yeah, it definitely listeners. helps. And one thing that you said that I that I want to ask a little more about, and and that really resonated with me was was your remarks about how the guru, um, what was the word you used besides disciple? Shishya. Shishya. Mm-hmm. The guru guru shishya relationship in the West is not quite as understood as deeply. And and I'm wondering uh, if that is partly due to the socialization I feel like we have in Western culture to not surrender our power. You know, there's a, there's a sense in which, you know, we, we're often seeing, um, you know, imperatives to stand in your power or to be your own, you know, light and to, and to really be kind of a socialized to be a very... Uh, an individual that doesn't need anyone or is kind of is completely autonomous. So we have this culture of autonomy that's always you know around us. So I'm wondering if you think that that's partly related to this fear of 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 really entering what appears to be a, a surrendering kind of relationship, and then also um, yeah Can you speak to that yeah for a second do. so. I think that, you know, first of all, some of the concepts need to be a little demystified. I think part of why the Guru-Shishya relationship is called into question is because there's not a single person watching this, uh, watching or listening to us that is hasn't experienced some fracture in trust. And 
one of the most profound are obviously um, when it's in the context of something sacred. I think of it like this, you know, sexuality can be incredibly sacred. And we all know that it can also be incredibly profane and it can be exploited. So it depends on how you want to engage it. And that's going to be based on... um, so many factors, but I think that that doesn't, dis, you know, the profane doesn't discount the sacred, and the right. sacred doesn't discount the profane. I mean, people are able to utilize them in both ways. And I stand on the side of you, you know, engaging this topic and this focus from a very sacred perspective. For me, tradition came, I always say this, but tradition came for me, Jake. Um, in a very good way. Mm-hmm. It, you know, I, I had a, a guru who was extremely caring, who was interested in my, um, truly my soul's growth, development, and ultimate evolution. And not just my own, but all the people he came in contact with. Um, and so for me, and he was lovely and delightful and sweet and knowledgeable. All of this came in a very positive way. For students, who, so for me, the sacred is is easily accessible in this way, and I stand up for that aspect of tradition. By saying that, I also am aware that there are times when the tradition doesn't show up that way for someone. Mm-hmm. And I'm grateful that it showed up for me this way because not only can I, not only does it give me the strength to see that it showed up for me this way, but also for me to see, oh, you know that level of trust and connection has actually given me enough space to be able to see the whole field overall, not just the field of my own experience. And that's very yogic. That's the capacity to have real, um, to have more vision. You know, the yogis, I always say, they give up their perspective, their individual perspective to see more universally. So I can see the ways in which, of course, that things could be, Um, misused and abused, but I think one of the key things is, and I spoke about this in a Periscope some while back, but um, the key is for us to start to learn how to trust ourselves. Mm -hmm. Then you will start to sense when you feel that you are in a place where there is knowledge, where there is uh, clarity happening, and you'll also sense its opposite. Yeah. Yeah. And I really, I want to go back to one thing that I, that also really stuck with me and I thought was really powerful is, is the idea that you mentioned comparing it to a mother and a father. It's not that if we have a problematic relationship with those figures in our life, that that means we throw out the function of the mother and the father. That's right. In the same, you know, and I think that's so, that really clarified that to me actually, to hear you say that, that, that we don't just throw the baby out with the bathwater, you know, and, and, and also to hold the sacred and the profane in the same experience of, of a spiritual trajectory rather than trying to, you know, escape from the profane seemed also kind of resonant. Or to reject everything as profane or everything as sacred. You know, clearly mm-hmm. if someone is abusive, that's not sacred yeah. and should not be treated as such. But there are, that doesn't mean there's never moments where there can be true trust between a teacher and a student where a teacher, albeit, dare I say, a guru can actually view a student's practice, the places where they're clear, the places where they're becoming, where they're confused, and help that student out of their love and their deep uh, care for that student and say, you know, why don't you try this piece? And if, if the teacher happens to be an asana teacher, they're going to find their way through that. If they're teaching through Sanskrit, they're going to find that, or through mantra. If it's philosophy, they're going to, you know, work through that, mm. that field. So it depends, um, 
So I hope that that answers or that yeah, gives definitely. a broader way for all of us to have a conversation mm-hmm. about this very, very hot topic and very rich and meaningful discussion. Mm-hmm. So what, is, what do you see as perhaps the symptoms, if that's the right word, of a culture, a wider yoga culture that's um, shirking itself of the guru shishya? Uh-huh, guru shishya. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> We're going to do that all day. Shishya tra- tradition. Uh, I'm not sure I understand the question. So the, the, the loss of the guru as something that we seek in our spiritual path, you know, in, a, in the wider community, do you see symptoms in, 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 form, in, in terms of people's practice? Like are there, are there problematic things happening as a result of the loss of the respect for the teacher in this way? Well, I'm not sure that the people who kind of stand with their, you know, flags in the air um, you know, not having that. I don't know if they're necessarily against the teacher-student relationship. I think, I think for them, there's a different road that works mm-hmm. for them. And I okay. actually have total respect for them. Um, and I'm not trying to walk a middle path. Right. I'm just simply saying that for them, maybe that's not their journey. You know, like, like I told a student of mine some a while back, he was a doctor and he was brand new. And I said, look, every healer has to recognize this. I am a healer. You are studying and about to become, you know, you're becoming a healer. He's a doctor, but he's becoming a healer now. And he's full fledged. Now I said to him, you're not going to be everybody's doctor. You can't be everybody's doctor. And if you're a teacher and that's the way by which you bring healing, um, or you channel that force, you're not going to be everybody's teacher and your way is not going to be for everybody. Mm -hmm. So I respect those who say, you know what, that shit ain't for me. Mm -hmm. Um, but those who say, you know, there are a lot of people who say that shit is for me, that tradition, that depth I want access to, I want access to that level of trust. I want access to the, the, You know, there's something that happens between people when there's an intimacy. I'm not talking about sexual intimacy. I'm talking about an intimacy of spirit. That's a part of what is deep in the teacher-student relationship. An intimacy of spirit, an intimacy of trust that in a healthy relationship gets built uh, slowly and steadily over time and with profound respect. So what do I think gets lost? Um... I think when you work with somebody and you are able to really develop that, it fans out, Jake, into your Mm -hmm. entire life. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I always say this about meditation. You know, you don't really get anything from meditation. You just get everything from meditation. (laughs) So in the same way, you know, you get a sense of peace. You get a sense of ease. You can have distance between what you're immediately making meaning about and and what's going on in your life. That's phenomenal so Mm. you know a teacher-student relationship of the tradition is still rare and incredibly beautiful and um Mm. i think you get access to something quite sacred in yourself and uh and not to mention the the vast corpus of knowledge which in and of itself for me acts like they are mini gurus like each mantra for me has taught me almost like it's a sub guru yeah each i'm sure for asana practitioners it's the pose itself, like Sri K. Patabi Joyce would say, practice and all is coming. It's in the practice where there's another layer of that kind of unveiling of a teaching for oneself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like that idea of the, of, the, of the guru not necessarily as a particular figure in the more traditional way that 
we think about it, but the guru as, like you're saying, an aspect of the practice or a mantra, a mantra. Yes, so that's really and that, 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 that fans out into your whole life. The mm-hmm. more deeply you go into tradition, the more that that fans out mm-hmm. into your life. And more you, you know, see the world around you as a guru. Exactly, and I don't mean you see it as like, you know, people use these pat Faces phrases. <laughs> yeah, or, or, well, yeah, I don't mean that. I don't mean like you see like, you know, a little picture of your teacher walking around everywhere. I don't know why I'm doing this, but apparently Gurdjie did that. <laughs> but I also don't mean um, that, you know, that it's a pat quip. Like, you know, I hear this phrase all the time, like, everyone's your girl. Well, it's not that. It's mm-hmm. that you start to listen to everything so deeply. Right. And you don't become like deep thoughts with Manorama or deep thoughts with somebody, but you just start to pay attention in a way that you would if something had a sacred quality yeah, to, to yeah. it, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. Yeah. So I want to shift a little bit and ask you about the significance of spiritual names, because uh, from what I understand, Manorama is not your given name, but that's your that's your spiritual name. Given that's right. Name. My given name is Thea Dalvia. Oh, beautiful. Thea Dalvia. Um, so I, I'm wondering if you could explain kind of when when you received your spiritual name and what aspect of your own kind of what was significant about the place in your spiritual path where where it made sense to be given a name? And then maybe... That's so funny. You know, nobody in all my years, Jake, nobody's ever asked me. Really? They've asked me what my name means, but no one in all these years, it's been 30 years, has ever asked me how I got my name or what was the other part, the, the context in which I received yeah. it. Um, so let me share yeah, a little something. Nice. You heard it here first, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So, wow. Let's see. So Gurchie, um, everybody had a spiritual name and I, it was funny when I met my teacher, I've said this before, but I didn't know that Guruji was not a name. I thought his name was Guruji. Like there's Greg, <laughs> Guruji, David, Mark. <laughs> I didn't know that people looked for gurus. I was very young as I told yeah. you before. And, and, but you know, when, after I spent maybe a Sometime there, I started to notice that many people had these different names. I was sort of getting more curious about Sanskrit because Guruji was so steeped in the language and loved it so much. And he um, he would ask, like, you know, somebody a question and they had a Sanskrit name, someone else. And I just started to get curious. So I started to ask, you know, do you... How do you, how do you have that name? Like, where did you get that? Is that your name? Oh, no, my other name is... Kim or my other name is Mark or whatnot. And more time passed. I'm listening more to Sanskrit. I'm starting to get acclimated to the sounds and I'm liking them, Mm -hmm. you know? And so I started to notice or sense an affinity. Um, Then I was developing in my relationship with Gurji. I was really, I would go there after my classes in high school, you know, be like math. And then I just couldn't wait to get out so I could get over there and hear Gurji talk about the meaning of life and all that jazz. And then one day, um, I spoke with my mother about it, and we both were going to request a name from Gurji together. Mm. So I was, I was quite bold, obviously, as a 13-year-old, but I was still 13. So we did it together, and then Gurji said he would think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it would take him a very long time, mm-hmm. but his name for myself and my mother came very, very quickly, like right away but sometimes it would take him quite a while for somebody to get a name um in my case 
it was very fast. It was right in that moment. He just looked at me and then he said, he wrote it down. I still have the piece of paper. And he's very funny. He wrote uh, manorum, of course, which means, so everybody knows, uh, rama comes from the root rum to play, to sport, to charm. Mm. So it has that quality of charming and playful. Um, and then mano means, manah means the mind, but it can also mean heart. So in this case, it means charming to the mind, delightful, or charming to the heart. And it is also a quality or kind of a feeling when Rama is near, the god Rama, who is the playful lord, um, there is the feeling of manorama. So he he wrote, you know, what it meant, and, and then he wrote, Miss America. <laughs> <laughs> I still have it on the piece of paper, and I laughed so hard. But he was very funny. Gurji was, um, he called himself, or others called him, I guess, and then it started to become a term, the East-West Guru. So he always liked to find these little relatability points from the East to the West. And remember, he came at, to yoga, or he came to, sorry, he came to the United States at a time when yoga in the United States and in the West was very foreign. So he mm-hmm. was one of the front lines of bringing these teachings here. Wow. Um, whereas we are now going like, okay, so they've made it all very accessible, but what's the, what's the, what's the real? Or how do I find out that more traditional thing? So it's a bit of a, you know, it was a different time. Um, so he would add these little cute things, and that's one of the things. And a couple of other things which are a little private, so I'll just, <laughs> just leave those, keep, out those for today. keep those mysteries to myself. But they were very, it was very meaningful. Um, moment for me um and he called me manorama and it's it's funny to have a second name or to have two names i should say because i don't think of it as a second one anymore to have two names is really a a funny thing the people that know me as thea they're always like you can't be i'm in manorama they always think it's so like manorama they don't know how to say it they're all freaked out but people who know me primarily as the name manorama they're like they get disoriented, like Thea, like as if you mean, as if you are a different person with the name. You are the same person, but the naming, there's something to be said about the naming, which I think is interesting for your listeners. Uh, and that is that the name is symbolic of some aspect of God. And so the more we hear ourselves called to that, the more we move towards that in our lives. Mm. Well. And that's part of the meaning of that. It's not meant that, you know, you sort of drink the Kool-Aid kind yeah. of a thing um, or, you you know, you change your name because your name is so crappy. It's not anything like that. It's just meant to be that there's a way in which you're called towards light. And if you're called enough times, you're going to start to listen and, and sort of reach for that. Wow. That's a really beautiful explanation. Thank you yeah. so much. Sure. Um, so now we're sort of segueing nicely, I think, into this discussion about Sanskrit. And I'm going to ask almost such a, a basic question that it might even be a little trite, but I want to ask sure. you, what's so special about Sanskrit? Oh, mamma mia. <laughs> Ay, Dios mio. Y... Oh, holy shanti. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, what's so special about Sanskrit? Well, you know, I've been trying to figure that out for the last 32 years. Um, there's so many things that are so special about Sanskrit. I think for people who are interested in yoga, it is the, the one of the pieces that's so special is that it's a language of vibration, which we can mm. talk about and yes. we can speak more about, I'm sure. But um, for me, it's really a language of love. Mm. It is really a transmission of love 
from the rishis. Now, when we think of rishis, that's the masculine, or rishikas, the feminine seers, or those who are seeing deeply. They're like another, it's another term for yogi. They left for us these clues in the form of these poses, in the form of uh, teachings, in the form of mantras, right? So they left this as breadcrumbs for us to follow. And if we follow it, we get to have a little taste of that. It's kind of like if I talk about my grandma, you're going to get a little bit of the feeling of what I know to be my grandma. You're going to get that sense. You're going to get that the feeling of her embodiment as I understand it. So if you engage the mantra, you get this kind of access to this feeling. And the feeling is the feeling is special. It's the feeling that the language gives you access to, which is so special. And that feeling is the feeling of your true self, if I can use that phrase without everybody you know, closing their eyes and going to sleep. But that feeling of the highest aspect of ourself, this kind of awakened but peaceful, energized but not neurotic energized. It's a kind of profoundly awake, energized state. Mm. And um, when we chant, we find it's easier to meditate. We feel more energized. We have more access to our essential prana. And the language is, uh, it's linked with the wisdom of the seers. Now, you know, if you say that in English, the seer, you're kind of like left with a bit of a, what the, what? (laughs) You know, like the seer. Okay, cool. So you write down the note, like it's linked with the language of the seers. But then what does seer mean? Well, seers, you know, seer to see in yoga or in Sanskrit, we call the word darshan. So when you go see a guru or when you see a spiritual adept, it's called having their darshan. It means to have their vision, to have their seeing, but also to be seen by them. There's something about the seeing. When you can see, you access what's called witness consciousness. And in the witness consciousness... You see the whole field, and it doesn't sound very sexy. I'm going to say this. It doesn't sound sexy, but i got to tell everybody listening, it's freaking sexy as hell if you can just get your mitts into it and, you know, stop the, like, resistance to it, which, you know, for years I was resistant to it, and eventually I was like, okay, what the hell is this thing about witness consciousness? And I dove in, and it's very sexy, and what I mean by that is it's incredibly alive, alluring, beautiful, mm-hmm. It's, um, there's so much wisdom in that space. So it is the language of the seers. In other words, it's revealing to me from what I've uh, delved deep into, and I teach this in my Sanskrit studies method classes, is that it teaches the code of the universe. So it'll teach you the mantra. It'll teach you how to propitiate a god or to respect a god or to just connect with Shiva, Lakshmi, uh, Vishnu. You know, but then like you say, this is the month of Lord Shiva, you say... Om Namah Shivaya, Om Namah Shivaya, Om Namah Shivaya, Om Namah Shivaya. You say this, you're respecting Lord Shiva, but what else are you doing? The else you're doing is you're accessing, consciously or unconsciously, the field of the rishis and the rishikas. And that is no joke. And whether we are conscious of it today eventually we will become conscious of it mm. if we engage the practice. Wow. <laughs> so that's a call to arms for sure. That's a Check call to arms. Check out sanskritstudies.org. <laughs> yeah, right. That's a freaking call to arms. But not just sanskritstudies.org. Check out 
the the sounds, the mantras, mm-hmm. chant your favorite mantras. Yeah. And people get worried that they're not going to pronounce it correctly. Um, but, you know, if you if you just start playing around, you got to start rolling around in the field. You know, don't don't try to like uh, mm-hmm. on yourself. Claim. Don't try to perfection the yeah. thing before you can even play around in yeah. it. Mm. So that's a good segue because I wanted to ask you then, and you mentioned this when you first started talking about uh, Sanskrit, is the the difference between, and so I want to maybe ask you to compare Sanskrit, a language like Sanskrit, which you're explaining so beautifully as being a, and mentioned as being a pure vibrational language, versus something like English, where we have a rep, essentially a representational language. So in English, we, we use words to refer, to signify objects out there. So there's a separation between the material world and the kind of conceptualization, conceptualization of the material world, whereas from what I understand, uh, Sanskrit is, is uh, at least the deeper layers of it, it's it's not referring to anything outside of itself, but it actually is itself the the material, or is itself it within itself. It in it holds a certain power. Uh huh. Whereas in English, perhaps the word is referring to something outside the word that has the power. Does that make sense? Yeah, I I think you're referring to a concept that we speak about a lot in the Sanskrit tradition, and that is. Um, Sanskrit is the language where sound and meaning are united. Yes. Whereas in other more composite languages, um, less less mother languages, so mm-hmm. the composite languages that are derived off of the mothers, um, they are there's a distance between the object and the sound or the word that you put to the object. Right. Is that what you're yes, referring exactly. to? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, uh, what did you want to know about that? Just can I speak about that? Yeah, just what, how because for those who are raised in a culture in which they only have the English language as sort of a measuring tool to understand what it what is. What is a, a language? What is the significance of a language that is that what you're speaking about has this kind of pure vibratory power? Like, how can somebody who only understands the English language grapple with that or understand that? Oh, they're going to have to do some grappling for yeah. sure. I mean, you're going to have to like you're going to have to sift through your perspective a bit mm-hmm. to get to the other side. I mean, anybody who comes here and speaks Russian first, they're going to speak a Russian version of English before they speak English. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I call it a Mariscrit. You know, I say when you come, <laughs> don't make the mantra a Mariscrit. It's like asatoma satgamaya, tamasoma jotirgamaya, That's a kind of a Mariscrit, you know, and I tease people and I say in Miami there's always a bit of the Sanskrit going on. There's a bit of prasarita padota nasana. You know, we see from where we stand, Jake. Mm-hmm. We see from where we stand, and so the job of the yogi in training is to try to get outside of where we stand, and and you give up protecting your personal perspective to see a much more wide, vast scope, so that you can get access to the whole field, not just this limited field. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Sanskrit is uh, a mother language uh, off of the Proto-Indo-European source language of the Indo-European family of languages. And it is a language where sound and meaning are united. And so when you study the different mouth positions, of which there are five in Sanskrit, so I'm going to say this again, there are five mouth positions in Sanskrit. (laughs) Let me go slower. And all the sounds of the alphabet come out of or emanate out of one or a combination of these five. Mm-hmm. When you engage sounds, they direct energy to different points on the palate. That palate will go to different points 
or the vibration from those sounds will go to different points in the body, the heart, mm. which is, doesn't need an explanation, the throat, the seat of communication, and then the head, which is the seat of consciousness. So if I say the word Krishna, I have all these sounds at position three, which is directing the energy to the top of my palate, which is then bringing the energy to the crown of my head. So now I'm vibrating, bringing vibration or energy to the crown of my head. And I'm starting to have this actual godlike or uh, luminous experience where I'm feeling myself beyond my form as I say the sound, right? But, and the word itself is God or Krishna. Gurji also described Krishna as that force which never crashes. That's his own little playful etymology. Mm-hmm. But Krishna means a, a force that draws in and in. So the more we vibrate the energy at particular locations, the more we feel that, we we become curious to go in and in, the more we go in and in, the more we feel our own God consciousness. And that's all on some conscious or unconscious level experienced as you say the word Krishna, Rama, Durga, all these different sounds. Mm. Does that give something? Yeah, that's a beautiful description. Okay, great. Nice. So now I want to ask you a little bit about the Yoga Sutras. Ooh. And in, on your website, mm. your course is mentioned or is, um, is titled Immersing in the Secret Code. So first I want to ask you why, why the secret code. I think you've touched on it a little bit, but I'd love for you to kind of unpack that. What is the, what is the secret code? Um, oh, the secret code is a whole course, but... There is a code underneath the code. Our habit is to take something and and generally to see it from a surface level. But if you want to go deeply into the yogic teachings, you have to get beyond the veil. You have to get beyond the... um, You have to see behind what's truly being meant and you have to know how to read that code. So, for example, uh, I think maybe it'll be helpful if I give an example... Um, for example, Patanjali doesn't describe, um, in, in the first chapter, he doesn't say Om. He says, God is called, uh, Tasya Vacha Kaha Pranava. God is called by the sound Pranava. But Pranava is that force which is always new. He doesn't say Om. But you have to be able to read the code to know that Pranava is a signifier for what is always new. And what is always new, Jake, is pulsation. Mm. And that's why the yogis say, focus on pulsation, feel that vibration, because it's always new. Now follow me here for a second. What is new is what captures the mind. The mind always wants what's new. So the more you focus on vibration, the more it quiets and absorbs the thinking mind. And there you get the opportunity to experience what you are beyond your thinking mind and you access that rishi experience for however long that it's sustained for Mm. so um so did i answer that yeah you certainly (laughs) did yes very well um and and another question i had you know in my own kind of studies of the yoga sutras particularly edwin bryant whose work i really um, have enjoyed reading his translation of the Yoga Sutras. He talks a little bit about, and other scholars as well, about how the Yoga Sutras is essentially a renunciant text. I mean, it, it it really does seem to prescribe a kind of, ultimately a very isolated, seemingly isolated practice. So I'm wondering what 
um, how relevant is the Yoga Sutras for what today seems like really more of a of a of a householder practice, and also um, uh, for a practice that seems to be so committed to integration with the body, where in the philosophy of the Yoga Sutras we seem to have a call to extract consciousness from the the material world, prakriti, and and so to the body. Mm. Well, okay. So first of all, you know, I. I I think every every person has something that they're bringing to the table and they can speak about that. I haven't uh, studied so deeply all the different scholars' works and mm-hmm. interpretations of the various important yogic texts such as Bhagavad Gita, Yoga Sutra, etc. However, um, let's just say about the this idea that it's a renunciate text, it certainly is speaking about the need for a measure of internalization. The Yoga Sutra, the Bhagavad Gita, they're speaking about a need for internalization. And what I mean by that is a deep attention to the internal. And it just so happens that as you live in the manifest world, it can feel like everything is not aligning to get you to go that way. I mean, I wake up in the morning and if I don't have the strength to hold myself to the set practice, then I too can get swept up with whatever is demanded of me that day. I'm sure mm-hmm. people are listening to this and they can relate. However, when you build a strength through your practice, you don't get swayed. You hold to that. Now, the internalization is what is needed by that renunciate thing. So you renounce the family, you renounce, you renounce, you renounce. Some people are going to go, I love renunciation. I'm so down mm-hmm. with that. Other people are going to go, what a crock of shit. I want nothing to do with that, right? Mm-hmm. Good luck to those people. I'll wave to them on the street mm-hmm. and I'm not interested. You have to find what works for you, but I actually don't feel that those texts are, and I never felt this way, even though I studied under a renunciate, ironically, but um, I feel that the texts are talking about the need for deep immersion in contact with yourself. Mm -hmm. That requires time away from the world or at least a pullback from your focus on an outer level, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you can't be in the world, but it definitely demands, in order to to engage the practice deeply, I do think it demands, uh, it's easier and it's just more supportive to kind of pull out for time. Mm -hmm. But I know, and I've always felt this way about my own path, that I'm I'm a real... Um, mac and vegan cheese American, you know, I mean, okay, back in the days it was mac and cheese, now it's mac and vegan cheese, or it's, what I'm trying to say is, you know, it's ivory, okay, now it's the sort of the organic ivory, but you get my meaning, it's like I was very Americanized, and yet I was training under this guru who was a renunciate, who was deeply involved, uh, ensconced, immersed um, in the, the deep teachings of yoga, and living them, embodying them, to use our word. And at the same time, I felt that probably my understanding would be a bridge. So, and I think that that has definitely come to pass as the the years have unfolded. Um, So I really understand them, these teachings, through that bridgey perspective. Mm -hmm. Is that what I bring to the table? Absolutely. Could you say that Somebody else can bring something else and can make a case for renunciation. Totally. For me, I say to people, look, it is work. There's no way around it. But you can either go to the cave, which is a lovely thing to do. I just happen to like nice hair and I like my earrings and I like 
generally like my nails done, although I have to do that <laughs> soon. Um, but, uh, lucky this is just audio. They can't yeah, luckily. See it. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> but if, you know, at the same time, this is what I say to people. If you want to go deeply into the yogic path, you will have to put work in, but you want to make everything an entry point. So you have to find a way to make everything an entry point. And that's a skill that you have to learn. You need to study with a, a teacher or read a lot and develop, and then you can make everything an entry point, and you could certainly, in the way that I teach the Gita, the Bhagavad Gita, I should say, to be clear, because there's so many Gitas in the world, um, there's the Devi Gita, you know, the Saraswati Gita, the, mm-hmm. so many Gitas. But the Bhagavad Gita, or the Yoga Sutra, uh, they can be used as renunciate texts, and they can also be used as markers for going more deeply within yourself and inspiration to say there's something really rich and profound when you pull back from the periphery of your life mm-hmm. and you go in and here are some of the here are some of the ways you can do that here are some of the metaphors the secret code that i say is that it's told uh, well sutras not the sutras let's stay with that so the sutras are told um they're like one-liners, you know, in, in, a, in a kind of colloquial English. They're a bunch of one-liners, but they're yeah. not one-liners. They're very rich. And the more that you go into that, like you'll have this, you'll have like pages and pages of commentary on one sutra that's, you know, tiny. It's really mm-hmm. short. The whole idea in, in Patanjali's time and those who, who came before him who were also amazing that he built his work on was about not wasting a single syllable. It was a big teaching. We don't waste a single syllable. We don't waste one syllable. So the idea of the prana being precious, utilizing it effectively was very present in the yogic tradition, in the Sanskrit tradition, which are one and the same. And the, you know, it takes us a while. The, the secret is how do you thread things forward? How do you bring back what came after because in in a text like the yoga sutra they don't say they don't restate things they have a very short potentially had a very short window to say this is this mm-hmm. so i'll give a simple example the definition of yoga is given in sutra 1.2 yoga yoga is the process of the cessation of the vrittis these misidentifications slowing down or coming to a place of rest on the field of the chitta on the field of the mind, ego, and superego. Okay? So you take that. That definition has to thread through the entire text. He doesn't need to restate it again. Whereas in a text like the Gita, you restate things. You have more room. You have up to 44 syllables, and generally speaking, 32 syllables to say what you want to say. Mm-hmm. So in the, the Yoga Sutra, like I said, if you're if you're interested to go on the path of renunciation, you could certainly study it from that mm-hmm. perspective. And I would say that you know it's a beautiful path. If you're wanting to be more in the world, um, you can still derive profound yeah. uh, benefits and teachings. Of yoga. Yeah. So what I hear what you're saying is really that the text the the texts themselves are open to the interpretation based on you know the experience of the practitioner it's Definitely. it's capable of being reimagined in both a householder way and a renunciant way exactly yeah. well said Great. yes um, so now to the Bhagavad Gita, which you mentioned. And also, let me say this, Jake, mm-hmm. also it, it can be of great value to both both groups, so mm-hmm. to speak, you yeah. know? And so uh, both of these texts. So, yeah. 
Okay. So now, yeah, the Bhagavad Gita and on the your title for this course uh, on your website is the the Warrior Within, which I like because it it seems to and and maybe you'll uh, disagree with this interpretation, but it seems to um, point to a more allegorical interpretation of the Bhagavad Gita. And the reason I ask that is because I actually maybe it was actually yesterday or maybe two days ago on. Um, on a comment I had put out or a post I had put out on Facebook, a friend of mine commented asking a question. He's not a yogi, but he uh-huh. he's familiar with the Bhagavad Gita in, in, I mean, a relatively shallow way. But he nonetheless asked, what is the connection between yoga and a narrative that seems to be encouraging the dutiful murder of one's brethren? Brethren. So in other words, I love that. It's such yeah. a it's such a dramatic. I love his drama. You yeah. know, I love the drama of him. Send him over to my class. I want to like. Can he write some dramatic statements? I'm sure for me? he could. Yeah, I love that, and I appreciate that. I appreciate these different qualities that each of us bring to the table. So he says, "You repeat it, so I can." Yeah, he it. says, "You know, what is the connection between yoga and a narrative that seems to be encouraging the dutiful murder of one's brethren?" Yeah, well, you could see how that could be misinterpreted. Yeah. That's got a bit of a problem in it. Um, that's why it requires, and, you know, uh, I recently interviewed my brother for uh, a discussion on art and spirituality, and in our discussion we were talking about, my brother was saying, you know, everybody thinks that art is ancillary, mm. but every civilization since time began has had artists. Mm-hmm. So that means by de facto that art is, is endemic to people, to society, to, to humanity. Yeah. And he was talking about that, and I was, he was saying, I think we need more, more people. I think artists are translators. And I was saying they're like the, the shamans of our time. You know, artists are they're like uh, translators mm-hmm. for the information of the world of the time that they find themselves in. Mm. So, um, you know, somebody can say if they sit on the surface of the text that it's like a, a text about murder and, and bloodshed. Uh, we have this. We have another text that's very similar. We have this goddess text. The goddess she kills so many times. <laughs> she slays and slaps and punches and stabs and she does all this stuff, right? And some somebody who's not not very well, I guess, could take that text and make it, you know, they could use that to back up their argument, yeah, right? Like a Some, militarized yeah, exactly. agenda. Yeah. Fundamentalist agenda. But if we look if we look to the the interpretation of the yogis, um, which is how the text came to me and how I've come to understand it, it's reflecting, as my teacher used to say, it's reflecting the battle that we all have to go to go through for understanding our own nature. He said, mm-hmm. even getting up in the morning is a battle between you and the snooze. And he said, sometimes you tell God, he used to say this directly, Gurji used to say, sometimes you tell God you will meditate lying down and then you find you have lost the battle. You know, so, <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, just waking up in the morning is a battle, let alone waking up to who and what we are. You know, knowing that you are something more than the body and mind that you are something much greater is one thing. Living from that experience as an embodied being is quite another. Mm, mm. It's quite another. So how would you respond then to somebody who, and I, and I do know of people who have a very literal, like they believe that the, the battle between the Pandavas and the Karavas really happened and, and, and that it really is, um, uh, essentially they take, as being very real, the discussion of, you know, in, when when it is your duty to go to war, you know, so there is a sense in which it's 
apologizing for a certain um, necessary militarized answer to a certain situation. And people that want to be more, I guess, pacifist practitioners would find that to be very problematic. So how do you respond to somebody who does want, to the people that do literally interpret the Gita in that way? In, in a militaristic way or, or in, a pas- in a kind of like a collapsing way, either, either one? Yeah, either one. Or both. Um, how do I respond to them? I respond delicately. <laughs> I tend to respond rather delicately. You know, I have great respect for all people's perspectives. I just, I stand in my own understanding. Yeah. Um, let me think. I try to look to what they're actually trying to tell me. Mm-hmm. So if they use it in the context of a fundamentalist nationalist discussion, or if they suffered some abuse of their own, or if they've suffered some oppression, then I respect that that was part of their journey and that it was painful for them and that they are working through that piece to the best of their capacity. Um, but we're probably not going to be in the same classes together. Right, right. You know? Yeah. Um, so... I respect, I respect them, but I don't necessarily, uh, I wouldn't stand on the same, um, like I said, class with them, or we wouldn't stand in the same viewpoint around it. But that said, um, you know, I probably, actually one thing that I would probably do is get curious about the fullness of their argument. I wouldn't just reject it because it wasn't mine. I would kind of go, okay, let me listen and let me hear Mm -hmm. and let me see what's of value that they're saying. And then let me see if there are places that we can connect. Because Guruji used to always teach me that look for a man of or woman of unity. Those are the people who are great in this world. The disunity, the ones who are always saying it's not this, it's this, and not that, it's this. That's very easy. That's so easy to come by, but to look for points of connection. So I think at this stage in my life and my development, I'm also looking always for points of connection. I would probably look to their argument, and while I may not agree with it um, in certain areas, I would listen for the places where we could come to some kind of harmony and thereby uh, stand in the light of yoga together. Mm. That's very that's much a very, what I That's would a very do. diplomatic response. Yeah, no, it's not just diplomatic. It's actually from training. It's yeah. actually like training in the process of yoga. So mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that I don't, you know, that I might not say like, this is bullshit or that's bullshit. But at my real core, I would look for points of connection. Yeah, that's the wise thing to do, it seems. Yeah, yeah, yeah I would yeah. try that. So I have a couple more questions and, sure. and then we're nearing the end of our beautiful discussion. Um, but I wanted to ask you, um, sort of going back to your own practice in history, what does your daily sadhana look like today? Well, uh, it always consists of meditation. It consists of breath practice. It consists of, when I say meditation, I say yoga meditation to be clear. So it consists of quiet meditation of witnessing the mind. Um, it consists of chanting specific mantras that I was given by my teacher as well as some that I've added along the way that depending on what's happening, like if there's a certain festival on, I'll be maintaining what's called a puja or I'll maintain a, a specific you know festival. Let's say the goddess period happens twice a year. So during those festivals of the nine days, I will be chanting specific mantras. Um, or let's say uh, 
someone that I know that I'm very close with has fallen ill or if someone has passed, I'll say special mantras in honor of them. Um, so that depends. You know, a lot of people are, I'm sort of a go-to person for uh, this is happening that's very difficult in my life. And so I have a lot of people that I say mantras for on a daily basis. Mm. Um, quiet meditation, uh, silent meditation, watching the mind and watching the movement of what I call the wave, which we can talk about another time. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, chanting and, and breath practice. And then uh, and then I also, I love walking and it's so funny. I remember, I think it was St. Augustine. I found this note that my mom left. Uh, when my mom passed out of her body, I, we, she always had little notes everywhere, you know, and <laughs> she was a real mystic, my mother. And one thing she wrote on a post-it that I found, it said, it is solved by walking. And it was wow. by St. Augustine. And I just, just, it was just such a beautiful note. It was the moment I found it, it was very poignant. And so I love to walk in nature. And it's funny because I live in Manhattan mm-hmm. on the Upper West. But there's a little park, the Riverside Park, that I go to. I and love the Riverside Park. Yeah, it's very beautiful. And there's there are these trees that have become my friends. Mm. So that's a bit, that has been incorporated in the last few years that I, I spend almost every morning. I go over and say hello to my friends, the trees. And I listen to their uh, essential pranic nature or whatnot, mm. you know. Um Sometimes I hug them. So you may find a woman over there by the river hugging a tree. Yes. Oh, God. Um, but I like to, you know, at least have my hair done when I do it. So we try to find that balance point, right? I love that. That's such a rich sodden. And I really actually love hearing that walking and, and just being with your friends, the trees, is part of your sadhana because it, it incorporates, you know, a, a less than conventional in a way that people traditionally think of as sadhana. It incorporates a less conventional practice into your daily sadhana and shows that, you know, anything can really be incorporated into sadhana as long as there's a sort of sacred um, intention behind it. That's right. That's right. And I think that for me, asana, I have have a spine injury. I don't know if you're aware of that or other Mm -hmm. people, but I have a serious spine injury from a car accident. So I have to be careful with the asanas, uh, more careful than... uh, is easy to explain in a quick minute on the yeah. thing, on the, the talk that we're having here. So, but um, I was a martial artist. That was the way that I came sort of through the physical practice. Wow. And yeah, I was a kung fu artist for years. I, I know, watch out, that. watch out. Well, you know, more contradictions to go uh, go around. But I was um, deeply involved in martial arts. Um, and so I would train with Gurji and then I would go to the city into the uh, Chinatown and I would study martial arts uh, twice a week. So that became really my physical practice. Mm -hmm. And then after my injury, um, walking became more of a a staple Mm. in my practice. Mm. Yeah. That's cool. Funny, right? All right. Yeah, really funny, but awesome. Okay, so wrapping things up, I just wanted to ask you a bit about your own goings-on, you know, workshops. I know I've mentioned the courses quite a bit that you have. So if you want to maybe share... Um, an upcoming course that's launching soon sure. or a retreat that you're doing or anything you'd like the listeners to know about? Sure, sure. Um, well, we have a lot of things happening. Uh, one thing is we're about to have the uh, I Am Luminous Urban Retreat. This is uh, uh, something that I started a couple of years ago and it's really taken off where people can come to New York City or other urban environments where this is fanning out and they don't have to necessarily go to Costa Rica, although I love going to Costa Rica. Right, who doesn't? Um, and I think it's awesome to go do that also. So it's not going to replace anything, but it's just an option. It's a way for students to take these teachings and this experience of tranquility and how to work with the Luminous Soul Method teachings and Sanskrit studies in your 
uh, daily practice. So we have this uh, urban retreat. Last year, we had people from 30 countries. Wow. Um, yeah, it was pretty amazing. That's awesome. This one is happening March 11th. Oh, just look here. March 11th to the 13th. It's going to be on the east side. If you're interested to join us, hop along, Cassidy. Join us. Um, you can check out more information at sanskritstudies.org. And I'll be teaching... Luminous Soul Meditation. I'll be teaching some aspect of the Luminous Soul Pillars. And we'll be having wisdom discussions. And then there'll be ample time for students to go and take asana classes or to kind of spend the the weekend if you wanted to invite a friend, let's say, but you would take the portion of the retreat. And then you could spend the rest of the time with your friend in the afternoon and evening. So there's ample time for both. Um, That's coming up, like I said, March 11th to the 13th. And then the other event that I have happening is the Luminous Soul Method Teleclass Series, Mm. where, uh, you know, I'm not going to be offering this course uh, for a while after this. So this is this is the method that I realized, the nine pillars of a soulful life, where if you study these various um, these various pillars, the nine, you come to actually start to learn how to bridge these yogic teachings into your life. Yoga teachers often study with me. That sort of is my, my thing mm-hmm. um, as a teacher myself. And they often will say something to me, Jake, like, I feel like a fraud. Mm. They just pull me aside and they tell me this. But you know what's funny? Not just one. Lots. And yeah. I don't think they're frauds. And I always say, you're not a fraud. And they say, yeah, but I just, I think what they're trying to say is I feel like something is not come together for yeah. me. Something's not authentic. So uh, this is a bit of a response to that, certainly. But it's it's something that I realized after over 20 years of teaching these nine pillars and then I give very manageable exercises how to take these teachings into your life and work with these very simple weekly exercises uh, through this teleclass format where you can develop your practice. Yeah. So this is happening. Uh, and then in April, so this is happening March 15th, Tuesdays from 6 to 8 p.m. And then you can hear more uh, through the various social media platforms and so forth um, that I have Sanskrit studies and Manorama uh, Facebook page, I'll be announcing more about the Song of the Luminous Soul, which is a year-long training in the Bhagavad Gita. So Perfect. you can hear about oh, that. Those are awesome offerings you've got going on. Yeah, and then my last question, one of the uh, offerings I have on the website is what I call the Embodied Philosopher's Library, and it's a collection. Mm-hmm. Um, it's basically a very long, annotated bibliography of a lot of yoga philosophy and wisdom books that I kind of wish I had had when I first started looking into oh, all these what a teachings. Fabulous idea. Yeah, so I always ask the interviewees if they wouldn't mind sharing um, a couple of books that have been really transformative for you that you sure. might want to recommend. Right now, like uh, verbally or you Yeah, mean verbally right and then now? I'll put okay. them on the on the Well, on the you form. probably have some of the ones that I've mentioned, yeah, but perhaps. I would say I would say uh, an, a, mu- a must-have is are several copies of the Bhagavad Gita and mm. the Yoga Sutra. Must-have several copies. You need several copies to hear different interpretations yeah. and to come to your own deeper understanding. I would say the book I Am That by Sri Nisargadatta mm. Maharaj, which yes. is a question and answer. Um, that's an invaluable book that you want to read in short segments. Um, I would say the uh, Be As You Are by Ramana, Sri Ramana Maharshi. Mm. And then in terms of Sanskrit texts, I would say uh, more more than just the Bhagavad Gita and the, um, the Yoga Sutra, I would say a, a wonderful translation of the Ramayana is by a man named Ramesh Menon. 
it's so beautiful. I mean, he's so steeped in tradition because his translation, it's not a word-for-word translation. It's a, it's a retelling, but it's excellent. It's mm. just excellent and very poetic and very well, re- uh, very well written. And then I also think, you know, a great thing for a person who's studying yoga is to have a proper Sanskrit dictionary. Can I just give yes, my plug for please. this? And the, my favorite dictionary for students to begin is most of us want to do English Sanskrit. I'm going to say do English Sanskrit, but also think about getting a Sanskrit English. Mm. And Apte is a fantastic resource, A-P-T-E. You can get it off of Amazon or any of the various channels, probably Barnes & Noble. Um, But Apte's is fabulous. And finally, I would say maybe something like the Atma Bodha by Sri Shankaracharya uh, or the Aparokshanubhuti. So these are some... Thank you. Yeah, Yeah. those are some great texts. Awesome. I'll put those in the show notes and put them also in the library so people can uh, access that. That's excellent. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Manorma. This has been such a rich and beautiful discussion. It's been such a pleasure chatting with you today. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me here. I've had a wonderful time being with you. Absolutely. So thanks again, Manorma. Thank you so much, Jake. What a wonderful pleasure to be here with your beautiful program, Embodied Philosophy, and this, I think you call it, what do you call it, chit heads? Chit heads, yes. I love that. That's so cute. Thank you. Thank you so much, and it's a pleasure to participate, and, and I wish all the listeners this small Sanskrit uh, blessing, which is Shivaste Santupantana. May your paths always and continuously be blessed. Be blessed, everybody. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, everybody, there you have it. That was our interview with Manorma. If you want to find out more about Manorma's offerings and the incredible courses that she has coming up through her website, check out sanskritstudies.org, sanskritstudies.org.